0: So very thrilled today that we have not one, but three of our good friends from the sovereign debt world, but good friends otherwise, to come and talk about what Mark and I think is perhaps the, if not one of the central questions in sovereign debt. And that is the question of how much reputation matters in driving the sovereign debt markets. Now, to provide a little bit of background on how we view this as legal academics who study the sovereign debt world, and I hope Mark will correct me, when we look at the literature on sovereign debt and that is a literature that is largely dominated by economists, they often talk as if law and enforcement through law are completely irrelevant and that all of the dynamics of borrowing are driven by reputational concerns. So this goes back to the classic Hamiltonian view, that countries need to invest in a reputation for repaying debt. And then if they do that, they will thrive. And maybe the sort of casual anecdotal view about serial defaulters like Argentina or Ecuador or Belize that they suffer because they do not build up a reputation. So that's, that's my casual understanding of how this literature has set things up. Now, part of the reason that we wanted uh, Mathilde, Paolo, and Ugo to come on our podcast today is that they have written this wonderful new paper that seems to suggest right at the outset that our traditional understanding of how reputation works In these models of sovereign debt, is perhaps a little bit flawed, or at least that it deserves more inquiry. So I'm hoping we can begin, and I'm going to direct the question to Mathilde with her articulation of what role uh, reputation plays in the sovereign debt world, both as a theoretical matter and as an empirical matter. And Mathilde, please don't hesitate to correct me if I've gotten things completely wrong, because uh, the listeners to this podcast are quite used to my getting things wrong.
1: Thank you so much, uh, first of all, too, and Mark, for inviting us here today to discuss our paper. So one of the big characteristics of a sovereign debt is its limited enforceability. So in this in the case of the sovereign debt creditors' rights, they are not as well defined as the debtors' rights. Um, If a firm of an individual does not honor its debt, the creditor can take over the assets of the person. This, however, does not happen in the case of the sovereign defaults, because sovereign creditors have limited legal recourse. Therefore, the only way that sovereign creditors will be willing to lend and debtors to repay if there is a cost associated to sovereign defaults. And there is a seminal paper by Eaton and Gerzowicz, 1981, that gives a general message, which in, and it's very, um, it's a seminal paper in the uh, sovereign defaults literature. And the message is that sovereigns can only be forced to repay, and they will do so only if the actual cost of paying is lower than the expected cost of default. However, to estimate empirically uh, this sovereign cost, it's uh, very very difficult because there is a series of measurement and endogeneity problems that can make this question difficult to answer. And what actually the main message that uh, lies in this literature is, as I was saying, from Ethan and Gerzovitz, the creditor will only lend if they think the debtor will repay, and the cost of defaults are what makes sovereign debt possible, and in this case, are these reputational costs. But among these studies, there is actually a little agreement of what the cost of default is. Some study, they find then there is some cost, but there is very low and short-lived. Other studies, they say that the cost is persistent, and there is a strong... Uh, long-term cost and other it says that this depends on the level and of air cuts so what we tried with our study is actually to tackle this question from another point of view we try instead of asking answering what are the cost of um, of defaulting we ask what are the benefits of not defaulting and this is very important in our setting because we are studying Colombia in the Latin American debt crisis, and Colombia was actually the only country that did not default. And you will imagine if you assume that there is a cost associated in defaulting and therefore a benefit in non-defaulting, these benefits should be very strong when everybody else around you is defaulting. And so, therefore, there should be a stronger reputational answer. And I, I will pass to Paolo and Hugo that they are more expert in this literature. If they want to add something of uh, my initial comment.
2: Well, well Mathilde, let me, let me interject if I if I can, because I I think one of the things that is most intriguing to me about so your framing of the paper and the problem is the this sort of uncertainty, it seems, about what it really means to say that a country is a defaulter or is not a defaulter. And so, Ugo or Paolo, I wonder if you could maybe pick up on that theme. One of of the the takeaways from your paper, less an empirical takeaway than a conceptual one, is that maybe that distinction is a lot more slippery than we might initially think.
3: Can I, maybe I'll, um, maybe I'll expand uh, for one minute on what Mathilde said, and then I'll answer to your question, Mark, if that's okay. Of course. So so, so Mathilde gave the exact representation of the uh, standard approach of economists uh, to this issue, uh, which as Mitu said is is different from uh, the approach of lawyers. So, you know, we start with this idea that there is no enforceability, and therefore country might just decide not to pay and then they pay only if there is a cost and what is this cost? And the original emphasis was on on reputation. Now, there are two issues uh, with the reputational story. One is what Matilda said, which, uh, you know, there is no agreement in the literature and estimating this reputational cost is incredibly hard. And there is disagreement on the literature whether such uh, long-lived reputational costs exist. So that's on the, let's say, empirical side. Now, on the practical side, the, the, on the theoretical side, things are even harder. So there are, so the original um, Eton and Gerswitz model was a model which did not try to have, uh, a, a, it didn't have a quantitative aspect. So more recent uh, models, starting with the work of uh, Christina Rejano and then Mark Wright and uh, um, uh, Martin Uribe and Stephanie Schmidt-Groh try to quantify using standard assumptions what is the uh, effect in the theoretical models of this of this reputational effect, and they get that it's absolutely zero. So they basically get that reputation uh, reputation only from, from a theoretical point of view would not allow countries to borrow so so so, so there is this uh, kind of um, complicated thing on, on, on the one hand policymakers and economists at least originally think that uh, you know there is a reputational cost of default then you guys lawyer are more suspicious of this story that that is not enforceable might be other costs and quantitative models find that, in the model itself, reputation carries either zero or close to zero weight in the ability of country of sustaining debt, and, and so then these quantitative models, they include other cost of default, which are output costs and so on and so forth, which are uh, again, incredibly hard to measure. So this we're sort of to put uh, into perspective um, uh, this answer. Now, Policymaker, however, they think that reputation is very important. So in this case of Colombia, uh, we read uh, two books written by the head of the debt management office, the Colombian debt management office. And he talks about reputation basically two or three times per page. So he's really obsessive. He has this idea that he wants to show that Colombia is a good debtor. So that's uh, was expanding a bit on, on, on Matilda's answer. With respect to your question, Mark, you're you're, uh, exactly right. So so we started from, you know, we started with this project because when we look at the databases that economists use, Colombia is indeed the only country, uh, the only large country, not even large, the only country with more than 1 million inhabitants in Latin America which is not classified as having defaulted. Uh, in the 1980s but then when we looked and you know we were learning about it and we talk about uh, people who were actually there at the time uh, we found out that Colombia did you know it it rescheduled its debts more or less like the the other countries and just did it in a more market-friendly way and so your point mark that there are you know We are used to think of defaults as a dichotomous variable, either you default or don't default, but one thing that we learn in this this paper we're not the first to notice that that there are many ways in which you can default so uh, it's it's this default is more of a continuous than a discrete variable and I shut up.
0: That was incredibly helpful ugo especially when <laughs> you make the point that these empirical models uh, find sort of a zero effect or at least that the model can't be sustained by reputation alone which is which is quite at odds with the way in which i've heard so many papers describe the world which is that it it is completely driven by reputation but before we get into your wonderful description and analysis of the Columbia case. I'm hoping we can spend a little more time on thinking about reputation itself. And uh, Paolo, I hope I can uh, direct this question at you. And you you have written about Greece and uh, the European context as well. I I remember during the crisis reading your work uh, frequently And I'm wondering how one thinks about reputation. So please correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding in a lot of these debt models is that the conception of the sovereign reputation is as if the only thing that matters is how you behave in terms of repayment. But if I think about, for example, Ugo's, Reputation with me or his level of misbehavior, and whether I should work with him on the next project. You know, it, it depends on a lot of things whether he answers my phone calls, whether he responds to my emails, uh, whether, you know, he makes me nice food when I go to visit him. Uh, it's not just whether he meets the deadlines for the paper and writes about the paper, and the same way. I mean, sovereigns have uh, so many different sources of reputation well beyond just repayment of debt. But I, when I read the economics models, they seem to only think about sort of, did you pay or did you not pay? Uh, did you default or did you not default? Is is this my, is my understanding correct? And is that, uh, justifiable, or am I wrong that, that that actually the models think about this in a much more nuanced, holistic way?
4: Thanks for your question, me too. Yeah, I think it goes back to the way economists look at, at these issues. And in particular, I would say uh, the way that they look at uh, how do you enforce cooperation uh, between uh, agents with, you know, contrasting or possibly contrasting interests. I mean, it really goes back to the say, some sort of pitted prisoner dilemma where the two inmates, you know, have to decide whether to uh, confess or not and then and to give the, you know, the blame to the other guy and so on. And, and there is something that uh, economists have on the, on the back of their minds which is something that is called the folk theorem, which is basically Basically, that if the only way you can enforce uh, uh, cooperation be, between these two guys is over time by behaving well, and and if you defect, then you may get. Uh, away with it in the very short term, but then you eventually will, you will get punished. And if there is the ability of punishing in the case of defection, then uh, this threat may sustain a cooperation. So this is really, you know, thinking about these issues along a very simple one dimension, whether you can either defect or not, or in our case, that would be pay or not repay, And uh, paying is basically a way of sustaining cooperation. If you don't, you'll get uh, punished. And uh, and therefore, the issue is that if the punishment is big enough, that will induce cooperation. So that's really the way in which economists uh, think uh, you know, boring from from game theory of some sort of repeated uh, prisoner dilemma over time. So this is the structure is very simple. So it's just one dimensional, as we mentioned, as you mentioned. But I completely agree. And then when we actually and the models of Eton and Gersovitz and, and all this literature is basically some sort of application of this uh, kind of very uh, simplified way of looking at things, which is you know what economists do. They take Try to take you know the essential things and that matters and leave all the details uh, you know uh, for further consideration. Turns out that these other details in, in our case are are very important and in many cases because as you argue uh, there are many dimensions in which you can cooperate and uh, and your uh, kind of your reputation is built along many many d- different uh, dimensions and in fact. What we take out from our historical uh, plunging into the IMF archives is that, I mean, there is not really a big difference between Colombia and, uh, and the other country in the regions, in, at least in terms of how much they repaid. Okay. So they, they managed to kind of get along in a better way with the creditors to put, they put them around the table they negotiated some restructuring uh, they didn't do things unilaterally they didn't want to be seen as as doing things under uh, some sort of uh, threat or or supervision of the IMF because they they really wanted to show that they could you know take care of of the relationship with the creditors and not be forced by other super powers to to behave they just wanted to you know to show that they were the good guys and and but in the end when you look at at the data it's not that they repaid much more uh, than than other countries who explicitly defaulted actually at the time this distinction was not there because you know this these debts were not rated in the first place but uh, but they kind of did the same thing in a in a different way okay so effectively what we end up saying is that you know, it's the way that they did not repay by by restructuring the terms of the debt that in the end uh, was different. But, it, 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 you know, if you just look at the pure numbers of how much they did not pay back, there is no, not a big difference. So the question is, these different dimensions, uh, you know, if we want to put Things the way you put it, how 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 important are they, and uh, and we do find that they indeed are important because despite the fact, uh, despite the fact that you know if you look at the you know pure numbers there are no so so big difference with other with other countries, but the way the things were organized do appear to have. You know, improve things uh, and the economic outcomes of Colombia relatively to the other countries. So we we are actually saying that the way you do things, you can do the same thing, but in different ways, and these different ways in, effectively seem seem to matter a lot. And if you are polite enough, let's say, uh, and you show to take care of uh, of your uh, your relation, the people you have a business relation with, that that is a lot is is you know can can bring you you know quite quite far into improving you know the eventual economic outlook uh, outlook of your country so i think that's uh, in, in a sense uh, what we find in the paper
2: i mean to me this is one of the the most interesting aspects and i guess it it follows on to mitu's question about whether reputation might be more multifaceted than just um, the question of, of payment versus non-payment. I mean, one, one implication of your paper is that creditors are attuned to sort of governance or process variables. I wonder what you think of the possibility that they might also be attuned to differences in the, of reasons or benefits that follow from default itself. And and maybe I'm not being clear, but the idea is that some defaults are sort of good, uh, for lack of a better word, and and some defaults are bad or opportunistic. Um, And that a good default might be one that's necessary to let the government return more quickly to to debt service um, than would otherwise be the case. Do you think and I, I know that i'm I'm asking you to speculate, or at least I think I'm asking you to speculate. maybe there's some some evidence out there, but do you think investors are capable of distinguishing good from bad instances of non-payment? in which case I, I would think it would be even harder to, to measure reputation, and I, I am throwing that question out to, to everyone, Paolo. I don't know if you wanted to, to follow up on it. Otherwise, I'm um, Matilda Ugo. I, I leave the floor to you.
4: Maybe I can I just add a kind of uh, kind of a little short answer. Then Matilda the, and Ugo take over. Uh, uh, my 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 reaction would be that. Uh, So there is some tradition in economics about this uh, distinction between the ability to to repay and the willingness to repay. So this is a kind of important distinction. And in a sense, uh underlying this, you know, it's the question whether you know country default because they don't have the money to pay back or because they strategically, you know, take make calculations and then if they find it convenient not to repay, they don't. And otherwise and if they do, they, they repay back. So there is this tradition, but this ability versus willingness to pay in the debate, had been a little bit lost, but I think it's important. And my guess, but I just leave it to this, is that it, you know, creditors may, you know, understand to some extent, to some extent, whether it's a, you know, it's a matter of ability or willingness to pay back most of most of the times is both i guess uh but i think there there, there is something there which uh, uh, markets take into account when they decide you know how to react to some sort of uh, uh you know inability or unwillingness uh, to pay back so i think there is something there but i stop here
3: so uh, there is a. Uh... So, so uh, as, as, as Paolo said, it's, uh, from, from a practical point of view it's, it's very hard to, to, to separate these two things. Uh, from a theoretical point of view there is an, an old paper which I like a lot by um, Herschel Grossman and John Van Huyck which actually has a theoretical model of this and basically says that punishment in theory creditors only punish people who default frivolously would default strategically, so without any reason. Well, if somebody defaults, because simply cannot pay. Uh, you know, what? What can we do? We all have bad luck, and uh, and let's restart from zero. So there is this this model, uh, which is as Paolo was was saying, it's uh, it, it, it's kind of hard to test. But um, I have a paper with a with a guy called Mitugolati and uh, and Patrick Bolton in which we try to test a little bit uh, uh, this idea uh, in, in the case of the, uh, of the Greek debt restructuring. And, uh, and, and there we kind of, we, we don't test the direct effect on Greece, but you know, so, so, so Greek its uh, debt by exposed changing some, uh, some legal clause, uh, by post introducing in fact, collective action clauses. Again, this was an idea of, of, uh, of Lebu Kite to working together with Mito. So they're really the architects of, of, the, of the Greek debt restructuring. And when this happened, people were saying, oh, this is a massive violation of creditor rights within the European Union. No no, now no, no European borrower will be safe. Because you know now, Italy is going to do the same, Spain is going to do the same, and Ireland is going to do the same, and so on and so forth. And um, so, so that was one view. And the other view uh, was uh, basically based on some, some theoretical paper by by Patrick Boss, Bolton and, and Rosenthal, is that that you know uh, maybe when a default is needed, having something that makes the default process smoother and had clarity to the default process. Uh, actually can uh, improve the situation from all point of views rather than deteriorating. And so, so we, we use the court decisions around this, affirm the validity of the, of the, of the CACs, of the retroactive introduction in Greece CAC, and, and we tend to find evidence in support of the second interpretation. We don't find these uh, massive negative spillovers to, uh, you know, to Italy, Ireland, and Spain. So this is not really an answer to your question, Mark, but it sort of goes into this line that my big creditor understands that when things are done because it needs to be done, uh, there is no point uh, in punishing better countries.
0: Ugo, Mathilde, and Paolo, I, I hope you won't mind right before we go to break if I ask you a question that one of my students asked me when I told her that we were going to do this podcast with three of the leading experts on sovereign debt reputation, and their their question, this student's question, but I think it's a it's a question that uh, that most of my students are interested in. And to give you some background, both m- my students and Mark's students are doing a project on green bonds right now, and I don't know what Mark's students have found, but I'm guessing it's very similar. In looking at the green bond contracts, they find that for the most part, actually overwhelmingly, what countries do when they say, we promise to do this green project, or we promise to build this dam, or we promise to build this uh, wind turbine, or uh, protect the coral reefs, or or just be very wonderfully green and dress in green all the time. They also say, "Uh, look, if we don't do this, and instead we use your money to build a coal plant, uh, we're not liable to you. And it's not, any kind of default. And there was a recent podcast uh, that was done by another uh, podcast about sovereign debt in which one of the finance ministers was being asked about, how come there is no legal penalty in your bonds to your not doing this green thing? And, And the finance minister responded, which sort of, he must have been a, a traditional economist, uh, saying, well, you don't need penalties. This, this market, everything is driven by reputation. If, if we don't, if we're not adequately green, nobody will lend to us. And my students rightly asked, I think, which was uh, this particular country does not exactly have a reputation Uh, for performing on its obligations, so at least for maybe for some country that has a long tradition of performing all its obligations, you would expect that the market will think, okay, reputation is all we need, but if you are a country uh, that is a serial defaulter on its promises, and you issue green bonds, you would expect lots of enforcement provisions, and we don't see that variation. In the market. So, I, I, Mathilde, uh, do you want to take a stab at this? I, I don't know how to answer my students' questions about how whether or not this reputational story is just all complete fluff, uh, at least in the green bond context. Maybe that's idiosyncratic. Uh, but if you think that's an uh, unfair question, uh, pass it on to Ugo and Paola.
1: I, I will just make a small comment and pass it on, but I, at least what we find in our paper is actually that this reputation is very, very short-lived, so he has an effect in the short term, but in the long term, we actually don't find that Colombian, Colombia will actually benefit from some reputational gains from uh, not defaulting uh, in, a, in a sense as the other countries did during the Latin American debt crisis. And this could be for a different reason. It could be for what we were talking about between the distinction of inability to pay rather than willingness to pay, but it also could be because in our setting, since they did reschedule their debt in a different way, maybe the creditors, they they saw that, and in a sense, they actually punished um, Colombia in in the long-term. But I, I guess to respond to your students, I would... Pass on to Ugo and Paolo, who are more expert in the field in terms of reputation.
0: Ugo, Ugo I hear answer. you're uh, working on uh, green bonds. Uh, yes, or I should.
3: So I, I, I guess there there are two issues here, and i I'm, I'm still in the process of learning about green bonds. Uh, so one issue is 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 really what uh, Matilda said that you know maybe reputation doesn't matter a lot at least in the long terms which would go against the, the finance what the finance minister, minister said uh, not just for the country with the specific finance minister, finance minister but more in general in fact my understanding is that um, the, the premium, so I, I, I looked recently at the premium on green sovereign bonds issued by Germany and it, seem, it seems minuscule, it seems very small. So, uh, you know, market don't seem to, to, to price much on that. Um, but I have a more fundamental problems uh, with, which is a conceptual problem with green sovereign bond and it has to do with with the fact that money is fungible, right? So you would think that every country is doing a little bit of green investment, and then you know. So that I can always say that I did a little bit of green investment, and uh, and maybe I would have done it anyway, even if I had not issued the green bonds. Then to say, you know, oh, this the money that I uh, got to. So with these green bonds, I allocated to there. You know, how, how do you track where where the money is going? So, yeah, so so uh, there, there is this a little bit of this issue with fun, money fungibility. So I, I, I would like more to see the greenness of a country as a whole rather than the greenness of a specific uh, sovereign debt project. If
4: well, if, if I, I go ahead, realize, yeah, just a quick, very quick uh, addition to this. I think the stu- your students are right in the sense that you know it's kind of surprising, you know, the absence of you know more, more, more constraint on where the money is spent and so on, but. I mean, it, this is a kind of uh, co- consistent with, you know, finding that in the literature, which Hugo contributed to about, you know, how costly it is for a country to default is the, the, the fact that you fi- always find that the, that that markets have very short memories. So if you look at, you know, how costly it is in terms of reaccessing uh, the financial markets one, once you have been cut out after a default, it takes, it takes, You know, very little. I mean, you know, a couple of years, and how costly it is. It's very, it's not costly. I mean, the spreads after default are pretty small. So we have a lot of evidence that the markets and investors have very, very short memories, and we also find that. But that's something we know. And the question is why? Uh, I don't know. Maybe because they have better things to do and they you know don't, don't recall things and they forget as many of us do i don't know
2: well let's take a short break and uh, when we come back dive into some more of the the findings and details from your paper but let's take a short break first. I wonder if by way of leading in to a deeper discussion of your paper, if um, you and, and Mathilde, maybe I can, I can ask you to, to elaborate on this a bit. If you could um, give us a little bit more of the, the back story. So as I understand it, there was a firm conviction that Colombia would suffer a significant reputational penalty if it defaulted or and that there was, I guess, consequently a real reputational benefit to gain by doing everything possible not to at least appear to be defaulting. And I'm wondering if you, in your research, got a sense of where that attitude developed. It, it's, you know, it conforms so nicely, to the relatively uh, traditional, doctrinaire economic view you were describing at the very beginning, do you know where it came from? It, was this advice from the IMF for you know the, the uh, people in the Ministry of Finance, you know, educated in some relatively doctrinaire place in the U.S.? Where did this this firm conviction come from?
1: So uh, we we found, looking at the archival uh, um, IMF minutes, that uh, actually there was this very, as you were saying, strong belief that uh, uh, at the time the Colombia needed to be a good debtor and enhance this good reputation for the future. And I, I will pass this for Paulo and Hugo, who really uh, know this part better than me. And they can actually explain more in details. Uh,
4: uh, the setting. No, I mean, I, I, I personally don't know whether, say, the, the minister for the economy at the time in Colombia uh, was educated in the U.S. I, that's a very likely bet, but I, I don't know. I don't know the details. Uh, surely, the the general climate among economists at the time is 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 relatively similar to the climate today, so which is. Uh, the one that we have been talking about so you know uh, the reputation is very important uh now where this convention came from so whether you know kind of the influence of the IMF um i i can i mean i probably yes but to what extent I'm, i i won't be able to know and and why differed so so much from other countries in the region which presumably had also, you know, in, in their uh, economic ministry people uh, trained in the U.S., but they obviously didn't share that view. Why that is so, I don't know. It's I think, you know, it could be, you know, some sort of, to some extent, a random event. So why Colombia and not uh, uh, Argentina? or I mean, I think that's a difficult question. It probably has to do with the political economy of... You know different levels of governments and things like that. that I won't. I won't be able really to kind of pin down, you know, a most likely uh, culprit or or reason for why really this this idea was much stronger in Colombia than in other countries. Maybe maybe Hugo has some some idea on that. So I think it's a little bit uh, as as Paulo said
3: idiosyncratic factor. But there is this, uh, so I came out with this expression yesterday, I was talking about this paper at a conference in Paris and I came out with this uh, description, which I will now use from now on, which is the animal house effect. So I don't know if you remember the movie Animal House with uh, John Belushi, which at some point uh, he says, um, when the going get tough, the tough get going. So uh, there is a little bit, uh, of this attitude. And this was already present in the, in the 1930s in Argentina. So in Argentina, which, uh, <laughs> so we know of Argentina as a serial defaulter, but in the 1930s, Argentina was the good guy. When everybody defaulted in, Argent- in, um, in Latin America in the 1930s, Argentina did not default. And, uh, and the minister of finance at that time, um, it was called Albert Huello, uh, said something along the line Uh, it's a good thing to behave well in normal time, but it's twice as valuable to behave well when it's particularly difficult to behave well and everybody's misbehaving. So this was the idea that, you know, repaying when everybody has this defaulting uh, should get you a massive reputational advantage because, you know, it's like, you know, when the going get tough, the tough get going. So it's the, the animal house effect. And this was exactly the same idea. So we went and read these documents uh, by uh, Jose Luis Garay, who is the uh, chief of the debt management office of, uh, of Colombia. And, and you can find exactly the same thing in, in the writing of Garay that we want to be a special case and we should be rewarded for being a special case. And at some point, they're sort of like upset because they, you know these banks, you know, we're doing everything to be, you know, the good guys in an incredibly difficult time, and these banks are not rewarding us. They're treating us like they're treating everybody else. Um, so I don't think there was something uh, specific of American influence. It was just some idiosyncratic thing. I happened to talk. We we happened to talk with the with the guy who was the one of the lawyers of Colombia in the 80s and. And he told us that that that, uh, that Garay was really obsessed with this reputational thing that uh, that Colombia should be different, uh, and it, uh, he writes it in the book. One thing that is slightly different for Colombia: so Colombia had a very complicated uh, IMS program uh, in the late nineteen sixties, and after that point, there would be there was a massive political cost in Colombia to have another IMF program. So uh, a restructuring, a formal restructuring would have involved an, which would have involved an IMF program uh, would have been uh, incredibly difficult uh, politically for, uh, you know, the, the the Colombian authorities.
0: So if you guys don't mind, I I'm just wanna ask about the, this, this puzzle of, behavior of the Colombians in the context of some other work that I I think um, all of you know well, which is this hypothesis that maybe what is going on with governments who try very hard, much harder than we would expect to avoid default, maybe what's going on is really their self-interest in um, staying in power because voters penalize governments that take them into default much more harshly. So is there some kind of political economy story that one can tell here that maybe uh, uh, sheds a different light on the behavior of the Colombian government or, or was it? So from reading your paper, I get the impression that they just really had this strong religious belief in the value of reputation. But reading some of your own other papers, I think, well, maybe they're just behaving rationally like uh, governments do. And governments hate to default right now. We are seeing this with Sri Lanka, which sort of seems to be putting its head in the sand, even though they have no money, uh, to, to, and saying, we will pay, we will pay, even though we have no money and no chance of paying. And we've seen this many, many times. We remember uh, in Europe, we saw this uh, with Greece, um, Driving the train very fast towards the, the brick wall. So, it's a different story
1: one can tell? If I can comment in between before passing to Paulo and Hugo, and please like, correct me if I'm wrong. So, I, I believe for our story, it's mostly driven by reputation point of view. But there was also a political aspect at the time. For example, Colombia was able to be different from the other. Uh, Latin American countries because the U.S. uh, supported this proposal of uh, uh, enhancing the reputational gains of and having and not defaulting uh, for two reasons. And we found that one of the main reasons was because the U.S. actually wanted to support uh, the relation with Colombia due to the drug trafficking that uh, was going on at the time, and also because the Reagan administration at the time was worrying uh, was worried about losing support from uh, a Latin American country as Colombia, which was a very friendly us nation. And there was also another aspect, aspect that it was that the Fed, they also wanted to prove at the time that they were not just using one approach fit all for all the countries and having the same uh, type of, uh, of defaults. And then I, I will pass to Paul and Hugo if they wanted to add something
4: yes I, I agree with the, with the, with batilde i think uh in the, the role of the u.s uh, be it uh, the fed of the government was very important in covering the shoulders probably of the of the of the colombian government and i think that was crucial and to go back to mark's point of whether you know cultural so-called uh, issues uh, were you know behind uh, this this choice um i know i, I you know i we can maybe jump to the case of, of Greece more recently, which I'm familiar with, uh, which is an example of uh, you know the fact that cultural, the the cultural framework of of, of the people at the government sometimes does not matter very much. I mean, in the, the case of, of of the recent case of Greek of Greece uh, was that of a prime minister, which was Papandreou Jr who was trained, uh, I think, as an economist in in the U.S., his uh, um, Minister of the Economy, George Papaxantino, was a fellow of mine at at LSE, and he previously studied at NYU. So both these guys had very clear, uh, you know, the idea of the cost of of default, but but still, you know, Greece, you know, eventually, you know, defaulted under the auspices of the imF and the the European the commission basically and the bc a european central bank and so you know I think you know it's the culture of the leaders is sometimes very important but i would i would not you know put too much weight on that. Surely, it's a necessary conditions for good behaving, but sometimes it's not sufficient, and sometimes other things are like the one that Matilde is is uh, is has been talking about, like some sort of insurance uh, uh, that the government may 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 get from you know very powerful neighbors may maybe may even more important. But in the case of Colombia, probably there were the two things. So uh, according to the declaration of, of the, of the Ministry of the Economy, you know, reputation was really emphasized. And so here there was a clear cultural part, but then on the back of that was also some 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 kind of insurance policy that coming from the US. I think that's who we might take.
2: Can I ask Uh, I will try to make this question coherent. Um, I hope you'll bear with me. I'm interested in the the choice of test for the long-term effects, uh, long-term potential reputational benefits that Colombia gained. And in the paper, you use the Russian default in the late 1990s as a Sort of a, a, an external shock that allows you to compare how uh, Colombia uh, fared um, in comparison with comparable countries. And I guess I, I'm wondering if you can say more about the difficulty of finding a test for the long-term reputational effects of Colombia's conduct in the in the 1980s. So a significant amount of time has passed uh, by. Uh, by the time of the Russian default, of course. And I'm also, I wonder whether the Russian default caused uh, a crisis in Latin America of a magnitude where maybe, so if there's a reputational benefit, I, I imagine it goes something like this. Investors think that within some constraint, Colombian finance officials would make some effort to be creditor-friendly, for lack of a better word, either in process or in outcome. But I wonder if maybe the the crisis was severe enough that there just wasn't any capacity to do that. And maybe that makes this test particularly difficult as a, as a way of measuring the long-term reputational effect. I hope that question makes sense. Um, and, and Ugo, maybe or you, or, or Paolo, or Matilde, want to take it? Whichever one of you can can make sense of it, I would love to hear your th- your thoughts.
3: But maybe I'll start, uh, Mark, and then uh, I don't know if Paolo or Matilda want to add something. So, so uh, I, I guess there are two issues here: um, why uh, we looked at long term, why why we waited till 1998, and. Um, and how we did the test, whether we can say something. The the reason I think to look at the long-term effect, it's because there is where there is really disagreement. So everybody agrees that uh, there is uh, a little bit of an exclusion, a little bit of a spread in the, you know, one uh, spread increase in the one, two years after the default event, on this there there is agreement. Where there is more disagreement, it's whether there is a long lasting effect uh, of a default on that. And there, uh, I would say that most papers, so, so Matilde mentioned this, most papers uh, find that the effects are short-lived, but there are a couple of good papers, one by uh, a recent paper by uh, Luis Catao and Rui Manu, and an older paper by Shule Osler, which find that there are uh, very long lasting uh, effect of default. So I think there is some uh, intellectual value in trying to find if indeed uh, reputational costs are long lived. Uh, the second question is why 1998? So in order to have a clean test, we need some sort of exogenous shock and we need to be able to measure the immediate effect of this shock on you know, some measure of borrowing cost. So to do this, uh, we need daily data. And, uh, and basically, uh, these countries, Colombia specifically, were not part of the MB index until uh, the end of 1997. Uh, in fact, Chile is not in our data set because Chile was not in the MB index. So something that can give us daily price, basically until the very end of 1998, early 1999. So so part of the choice of, of doing this for 1998, because simply we didn't have high frequency prices before. And there is also, but there is also a conceptual reason that we cared about this long-term uh, effect. Now, it, it might be right that, so, so I guess I understand your, your question correctly, Mark, it's like when the shock is, enormous uh, reputation will not help you. So maybe maybe we should find an uh, intermediate shock. Uh, that might be the case, but remember that Colombia, so we have a graph in the paper, Colombia entered the Russian crisis with lower spreads than the other countries. And then spreads went up more than in other countries. So in a sense, uh, Colombia, not only we find that Colombia suffered less, but we found data that Colombia suffered more, uh, which is completely adored with any reputational story and also with the fact that then Colombia didn't default afterwards but other countries which suffered less from the uh, uh, Russian shock did default Argentina being one of them.
0: So guys um, we are we have taken up too much of your time and Mark probably thinks that I'm going to wrap up now and I, I promise we'll wrap up but Given that we live in very strange times, I can't help but want to use the opportunity of having the three of you here uh, to ask a question about current events. And so you know, every day nowadays I am reading in the paper, in the financial press at least, uh, about how two key countries, uh, Russia and Ukraine, are probably about to default. And reading your paper makes me wonder what you would say about uh, the likely reputational effects of uh, these two defaults if they occur. From one perspective, uh, one might think that, I mean, Russia has to default because it, it cannot pay anybody thanks to all of its assets being frozen. So that's sort of a, Excusable default, maybe. But on the other hand, they they seem like they've kind of behaved in a rather shitty way to the rest of the world. As for Ukraine, they are announcing that they are going to pay everybody, and in fact, want to borrow more right now. And my thought was, hey, you've got a really good excuse to not pay anybody. You're being attacked, stop paying and use the money that you have for uh, guns. You won't suffer any reputational costs. But I, I have three of the leading experts on sovereign reputation in the world. And I'm hoping you can uh, tell me about what's gonna happen. And then I, uh, Mark and I will become famous because we
2: will uh, play this. B- bonus points if you can do it in the form of an animal house quote
3: Paolo you uh, you want to go ahead or you want me to go ahead
4: no okay okay I can I can go ahead very shortly I mean uh, one has to be kind of uh, conscious of you know that risk going into wishful thinking, right? So saying things that he wishes rather than so to be biased by its own preferences. My, my guess would be that, but uh, 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 this is a political questions more than to some extent, you know, uh, more than an economic one. And I, my guess would be that Ukraine, uh, you know, has all all uh, would have get all the kind of uh, Comprehensions from financial markets, and would be willing to borrow uh, almost lim- limitless should it survive in some way. I mean, not being the risk being replaced by some sort of uh, uh, puppet in that case, that of course would not apply. While Russia uh, would not have a good excuse, and uh, even if you know he were had some of the ability to pay once the resources were unfrozen eventually, but. The still probably would suffer for some time so that, that that is my my guess, but uh, maybe this is wishful thinking in a sense that you know you you clearly want the bad guy to be punished and then you think that that will happen and this distorts your your judgment. I don't I don't know.
0: Well thank you guys so very much. That was really a treat and I feel like we learned a great deal and you were very indulgent in answering our lawyer-esque questions in terms that even we could understand so thank you very much